Mental Health Monday is an informational podcast and should not be used to replace the specialized training and professional judgment of a healthcare or mental health care professional. Mental Health Monday can't be held responsible for the use of the information provided. Please always consult a trained mental health professional before making any decision regarding treatment of yourself or others. Self-help information and podcasts and information on the internet is useful, but it's not always a substitute for professional assistance. Unless otherwise noted, guests of Mental Health Monday are not doctors or licensed in any way. Our hope is to make a connection with you and be more open and honest about everyone's mental health. Enjoy the podcast. Mental Health Monday! Well, welcome to another Mental Health Monday. My name is Riggs from Riggs and Alley in the Morning on 103.7 KISS FM in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. At the time of me recording and posting this, it is May, Mental Health Awareness Month. And this week we're talking about addiction. We've talked about depression, anxiety, bipolar... Uh, eating disorders, but we have not yet really explored the topic of addiction. Now, we have talked to people from Aurora Healthcare who happen to be the ones that run the Dewey Center. You don't have to go too far on the internet or any news website or even a newspaper if you're reading that to know that America has a horrible opioid epidemic. And Wisconsin takes the cake when it comes to alcohol abuse. The top five metro areas in the United States of bars per capita, that's one bar per X amount of residents, in the state of Wisconsin, it's one bar for every 1,800 people. Then you look at the top five cities in the United States that have the most bars per capita. The top five are Wisconsin cities. It's great to have a place that deals with alcohol and drug abuse because addiction is most definitely a mental health issue, no matter which way you cut it. The Dewey Center in Wauwatosa, Wisconsin serves drug and alcohol addicts and their families. And there's also some long-term stays that you can do. It's almost like a hotel and it's a beautiful new facility. So I sat down with two of the awesome people who work there, Paul Zenizek and Megan Craning. They were great enough to donate their time and talk about addiction and what they can offer for people who suffer from drug and alcohol abuse at the Dewey Center. And they're my guests this week for Mental Health Monday. So this is a brand new building. So tell me, what are some of the new features that this Dewey Center has that the old one didn't have? Our old building was a glorious old building, but the keyword there was old. Uh It was about as dysfunctional for a substance use treatment center. We didn't have elevators. We weren't handicap accessible. Oh my. And this building just really cleans up. What the new building has really let us do is triple the services that we um, were working with previous from our previous um, building. And as a result of that, we can do really creative programming here. We can offer programming morning, afternoon, and evening. Right. We're literally offering programming um, 365 days a year to address the um, the epidemic of substance use in the state of Wisconsin. Are this alcohol, drugs, opioids, all drug addictions, Everything. essentially? Yeah. Yeah, Everything, yeah. Everything? Opioids probably being one of the worst ones Absolutely. In, in Wisconsin. Yeah, unfortunately. Opioids are the ones that we're having the epidemic with right now. But Wisconsin's one of the leading states in the nation for alcohol consumption. And we're always well, neck to neck with North Dakota. And um, right now, we see those two very populations. They're very distinct. We have the kind of 40 and older alcoholic population and then the 30 and younger which are almost exclusively opiate users. Um, alcohol, obviously a big problem with Wisconsin, or just because there's so many bars per person? So or many bars just- per person and just a rich drinking history with all the bars and all the um, breweries. You know, we are just enculturated to 
go out camping and set up the tent and got to have a drink to do or to set up. Well, everything's around drink. Let's have a drink before dinner. Absolutely. Let's go have a drink after dinner. Let's go have a drink. We'll meet after work. Let's right. have a drink at the party. Who's bringing alcohol? Right. Uh, it's when you learn how to not control and it starts to control your life that it becomes an addiction, which is where you guys come in. So how does somebody, what does the check-in process happen? Like somebody has a problem with alcohol and they're strong enough to know that and admit it on their own. Let's say that's the case here. Best case scenario. How does that work? How does the process work, them coming here? Well, it really starts off, they can um, call our um, in central um, scheduling or our phone center, and they can actually get an assessment set up, and then they will meet with staff, and we will actually do an assessment to see what level of concern they should have um, to see if we need to get them into residential treatment, whether we would recommend inpatient. Um, but there's a lot of patients that really don't need that level of intensity, and so they can handle um, treatment on an outpatient basis or what we call an intensive outpatient program, which would be coming to treatment like three times a week for three hours a night. How is it different treating somebody with an alcohol addiction as opposed to, say, maybe a different drug addiction like opioids? How do you approach them differently? Yeah, or do you approach very, them differently? No, they're very different um, substances. They really require very um, different issues. With uh, um, drug users, we see much greater impulsivity. We see a lot of other behavioral health issues. There tend to be a lot more secondary mental health issues in addition to the addiction. You know, I think one of the things that people don't really understand is that um, with addiction, there's always secondary substance use issues, but then there's always secondary mental health issues. In the general population, about 8% of the population struggles with trauma disorders. In a substance using population, here we see almost 80% of our patients coming in with full-blown or partial trauma. And so what happens is if the person just gets treatment for their addiction but doesn't treat those mental health conditions, the quality of their life and recovery actually lessens and then that sets them up for, for relapses. And so the addiction drives the mental health and the mental health issues drive the addiction, both of which create difficulty with the person them believing they can ever truly have the quality of life they want. So somebody with anxiety is now suppressing that anxiety exactly. with drugs or alcohol. And that's exactly. where you come in as well. What do you say to people? I hear a lot of times people going, addiction is a choice. It's a choice that somebody makes. How do you respond to people that say that? Because it's a big, it's a stigma around people with addiction. Like you made the choice to put the needle in your arm. You made the choice to go to the bar and have the drink. How do you break down that stigma with people? I start a lot um, in with the patients who think that or who have heard other family members say that to them, um, just a little bit about the brain and what happens to the brain, especially with chronic you know, kind of compulsive use. It really changes how our brain works. It dysregulates a lot of important neurotransmitters. So I try to give them a little bit of that foundation as to why, you know, in the medical field and in the therapy field, we see addiction as being a disease. So they can try to buy into that too. And that so they can start to challenge within themselves when people, other people say it's a choice, it's a disease. Um, so they don't believe that, you know, and really try to work up that that self-esteem within them too. It's a partial truth though, because there are a lot of choices that are involved say. in drug addiction. And so when people say it's a choice, the flaw in that statement is it's not just a choice. You know, if you think about an equivalency, we've all had the, a good Wisconsin flu. And when you have like projectile vomiting, is it a choice to throw up? Right. And, you know, there are aspects of addiction that truly are a choice. If the person's been sober for a period of time 
and they go back to their alcohol and drug use and they pick up again, those first couple of uses do have a lot of choice. They did make the choice to go to the ATM and then to go to the drug house and then to get the drug and then to go put the needle in the arm. But once the substance use starts, then it's kind of unknown what where they'll actually end with that. You bring up a good point there about relapse, which is obviously a part of the cycle of addiction. It is. Um, how do you deal with someone that comes in and then has a relapse? Is there a limit to that or do you just keep bringing them back in? How does that work? How does that process work? You know, the long-term recovery rates for addiction are remarkably good. About 70% of addicts will eventually have long-term sobriety. But it's not unusual for patients to have 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 relapses on the course of that journey. So the question for the person becomes, um, there's two parts of getting sober. The first part is a motivational issue. Do you know what you really want? Because a lot of patients that are um, struggling with addiction, they still have the love affair with their using. And so there's a profound sense of loss that they have to give up yeah. before they're able to really embrace the principles of recovery. But then the second part is once you resolve that motivational issue, you still have to know how to get clean. And if those two pieces aren't working together, the person's going to struggle and have a lot of relapses. What's a day like for somebody here at the Dewey Center, somebody that's in here for treatment? Walk me through like a a typical day in somebody here at the Dewey Center. Here at the Dewey Center, we have residential programming. We have partial hospitalization program. Our residential patients will get up at 6 in the morning. Um, They will receive medications. They'll get breakfast. Our treatment day starts at 9 o'clock and goes until 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And then our residential patients will go to um, programming in the evening in terms of going to support groups or um, having alumni come in and share their experiences with recovery with them. Um, Our partial patients are encouraged to um, go out and begin to build recovery networks within the community that evening. Okay. Um, Kind of circling back to the relapse part, how do you reassure somebody that what what happened to them with the relapse is okay? Like that's part of the process. How do you assure them that they're not failing? They're just part of the process. How do you talk to them about that? I really try to do a lot of the negative thought challenging because there is so much negative self-talk and that fuels the feelings of shame and guilt around the relapse yeah. and really focus on if they've relapsed and come back, they're they're making the first right step. Yeah. They're doing the next right thing. So really try to focus in on you're here now. What can we learn from the relapse? Because there are probably things that we can look back at and say, okay, this is where I started to go down that path and really encourage them that no matter how many relapses there are, it's so important to come back to treatment and to learn from it and not to stay caught up in the relapsing using cycle. Right. Do you think some people can be genetically predisposed to addiction? That's been one of the great fights that we have had in the addiction field for the last 50 years. There are, um, there's evidence that supports both the idea of it as a genetic illness and there's other people that look at it and say, it really isn't a genetic illness. It's really more of a learned behavior, and families can um, pass on a behavior through the years. I think the best way to think about it is people are probably born with a certain genetic vulnerability that might put them at greater risks. We know that if you have a primary um, parent or a primary grandparent, that increases the likelihood of you developing your own addiction by about 40%. But the science isn't quite there yet in terms of actually identifying the gene or the 
chromosome that actually has the illness of addiction on it. Sure. How was um, a drug and alcohol addiction different from, say, an addiction to gambling or pornography or other addictions that somebody may suffer from? Are there are there differences between those, or is addiction addiction? Well, that's one of the evolving concepts that we're dealing with in the addiction field, and those behaviors are what we refer to as process addiction. The American Psychiatric Association is now starting to recognize gambling as the first behavioral addiction. And over time, we will begin to wonder about things like pornography or sexual compulsiveness or spending money. And should we think about those things as addictions or not? It's one of the controversial things because it goes into the heart of the work that Megan and I do in terms of what is an an addiction actually. And it's really not just about how much you use or when you use. It's really more about the inability to manage um, or to lose control once you start the behavior. Once so, you're, yeah, once you start making other decisions based solely on those addictions. Exactly, exactly. That it becomes a problem. Um, what do you think makes the Dewey Center stand apart from other treatment centers or other forms of treatment for addiction? Well, we're always really appreciative of any other treatment center because any place that offers sure. people help is really important. But part of what we really um, strive to do here, we really strive to integrate Um, best practice treatment. So, you know, there's a lag period from the time research begins to show interventions that are effective until they actually get um, sort of filtered down into the the field. And we want to be on the cutting edge of that. So we work very hard at staying current with where the research field is going and then integrating a holistic um, view of the person. So anything that improves the person's mental health whether it's mental health treatment, whether it's trauma treatment, whether it's um, parenting, family skills, whatever it takes to improve the quality of the life of the person we want to integrate into treatment here. So we do a lot of yoga, we do a lot of um, mindfulness activities, um, relaxation activities and things like that, which have been shown to be effective in the treatment of addiction. Exercise, things like that, getting your endorphins, getting your body moving. All of that. Um, So I'm sitting in the room with two professionals with addiction. What would you say to somebody that has a friend that has an addiction problem, how do you broach the topic with somebody without being too judgmental and knowing that they're going to get defensive most likely about their addiction? What's some advice you have to somebody talking to somebody about addiction? Sure. Um, I think to um, back to a, a TED Talk that um, I show my group a lot um, about how he talks about how we want to show people with addiction love and understanding and caring. Um, so I think coming from that place, starting it out with I really care about you and I, I, I see you struggling with you know X, Y, or Z and I'm worried about you and I want to be there to help you. Coming from a place of love I think is a really good place to start because you, you, you're right, the, the defenses are going to come up because yeah. oftentimes people with addictions are protective of that behavior. I don't have a problem. Yeah. I don't have a drinking problem. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm, not using, I'm not abusing my opioids. Right. I'm not abusing them. Yeah, so I think showing that it's a place coming from love and caring and worry um, is a really good place to start. And, um, and just maybe even kind of having an awareness that they're going to be defensive and that has nothing to do with the person expressing worry. Right. How about you, Paul? One of the things that we absolutely believe here is that family and friends are medicine for addiction. And, you know, I think all of us have like a grandparent who, let's say, is Catholic and you're not Catholic, but where do you find yourself every Christmas Eve 
and you're at the Catholic Church, just not because you're getting anything out of it, but because you love your grandmother so much yeah. that you're willing to moderate your behavior just to be a part of the family. And um, so when we can work with the family members to help them become effective at sharing their concern and their love to the, um, to the addict, that really helps reach the addict in a way we used to believe that the addict was using because they were in denial. And so families believed that they had to be harsh and punishing and judgmental and uh, mean. And, you know, we use the phrase, you got to embrace tough love. But, you know, the research hasn't really gone there. Um, addicts have to make the choice to get sober. Sobriety always evolves from the inside out. Yeah. But where do you find that value shift to become a, a recovering person? And a lot of times that can be incredibly influential when it's your child or your parent or somebody who says, I love you so much, it's really important to me that you be a non-user. So we work with family members to help them clarify why is it important to them that their loved one be sober? And then how do you begin to have that tough conversation by starting off by sharing why it is important to you that they're sober? Right. It's always going to be their choice. You can't undo somebody's choice. And what the research shows for families that do this, it's effective two out of three times, which is actually a really good response rate in the addiction field. Two out of three addicts will engage in treatment when the family member lovingly asks them to engage in treatment. And then out of those two-thirds, we'll see about um, two-thirds of those folks establish long-term sobriety. So the family can have incredible influence in helping facilitate the recovery process just by learning to speak lovingly, by learning to speak very behaviorally. This is what I'm seeing and letting go of all that anger and all of those kind of concepts that we used to do back in the 70s and 80s in the addiction field. Would you advise against doing the the intervention thing? You've seen them on TV. Well, uh, yeah, not not entirely. You know, there's a time and a place, but the yeah. way to think about the intervention, you know, the TV show makes the intervention about the addict getting into treatment. The family member needs to think about the intervention as I'm do going to do the intervention so I can look at myself in the mirror and say I did everything to reach my child or to reach my wife. I didn't leave any stone unturned. So if there is a horrendous outcome and the person overdoses and dies in their addiction, I'm not carrying the guilt and shame of wondering what if I had done the intervention. But, you know, interventions are really um, effective at getting people to go to treatment. But very few people who've been on the other end of the intervention actually finish treatment. And the reason for that is because the intervention raises the awareness that I got to do something to get out of this really emotionally intense situation. But they're really not buying into their own need to get long-term sobriety. You, they're doing it more out of guilt? Yeah. My family's here. I have to do something to I get them to, to stop. A absolutely. So recovery evolves from the inside out. And that means that the addict has to process through for themselves that I'm going to become a believer in this. You know, I'm a Chicago Bear fan. And so the. Oh, the we're metaphor, done. We're done right now. We're left. Yeah, I know. Okay, I kidding. know. <laughs> but if you take me up to Lambeau Field uh -huh. and you put a chunk of cheese on my head and you hold a gun to my back so I stand up with everyone else and say, go pack, go, you really haven't turned me into a Packer fan. And right. that's what a lot of addicts in recovery try to do. You know, they try to fake it. In fact, a lot of the support groups have the phrase, fake it till you make it. But, you know, the bottom line is until that addict really clarifies what's really important to them in terms of their own values and what they really want and why am I making all of this work and going to treatment and going to all these other steps that I'm willing to do until they have the clarity about that, then they're just really complying with treatment that makes them very vulnerable to relapse because they're not really believing it. Yeah.
What are some of the common misconceptions or myths about coming to a recovery center like this that might keep people, you know, scared from coming here? Can you kind of clear any of those misconceptions up that would maybe make people more at ease about coming and seeking out treatment and help here at the Dewey Center? I think one of the big ones is that treatment doesn't work, and it really does. Um, We um, track our outcomes, and we actually see quality of life indicators that improve when people get sober, even if there's relapses, even if there's struggles along the way. Um, So that's one of the bigger um, misconceptions. Um, I think the other bigger misconceptions would be things like, um, we're going to help you get sober here. And the funny things is that Megan and I, I know a lot about how people recover, but we're always kind of unaware of what's going to work for this particular client because the journey into recovery is always incredibly personal. I think one of the mistakes that we made in the 80s and 90s of treatment, we assumed that if you just went to AA and got active in AA and worked the program and worked the steps and had a sponsor, you'd be sober. And there were literally millions of people that were helped believing that. But then if you're the person who tries that and it doesn't work for you or AA meetings just aren't for you, then what? You know, the reality is there's about 250 to 300 different interventions that people use to get sober. Yeah. And some are really effective and some aren't that effective. But even the less effective ones might still be useful for that unique person who's struggling with their own recovery. Right. So what we do here is we do treatment. We don't do recovery. Recovery is the value shift. It's about falling in love with being a um, drug-free person. And once you make that shift, there's a lot of knowledge that we have about skills that improve the quality of life, things that people can do who are successful in recovery and things to not do to be um, or to avoid in recovery. But it's always a personal journey. Yeah. And you're the expert of your own life. Paul and Megan, thank you guys so much for coming on today. I appreciate you uh, taking the time out of your day. Again, I know you're very busy. I wish you weren't as busy. I wish we didn't need a place like this, <laughs> yeah. but uh, fortunately it is here for those that need it for drug and alcohol um, treatment and uh, hopefully recovery one day. And thank you for carrying the message about mental health and substance abuse this month. It's incredibly important. Absolutely. Thank you guys very much. Thank you. Thank you. You can find out more about the Dewey Center at aurorahealthcare.org and it's located in Wauwatosa, Wisconsin. Thanks again for checking out another edition of Mental Health Monday. If you don't follow me on social media, I've been doing real convos on my Instagram and Facebook stories at Riggs Radio. You can find me there. We're talking about everything from addiction to social media and how it impacts your mental health to depression and anxiety and suicide prevention. It's all about mental health this month, Mental Health Awareness Month. I'll talk to you next week for another Mental Health Monday. It's a Riggs Off the Radio podcast. Enjoy the rest of your night, your afternoon, your morning, your weekend, whatever it is you're doing. Make good life decisions.